Fáilte. Welcome to Connected Communication, a podcast exploring the intriguing interplay between language, culture and the brain through the lens of self-awareness. I'm your host, Christine. Trust in me, just in me. Do you remember the snake, Ka, in the Jungle Book? Also called a similar name in other languages, El Libro de la Junglia, El Libro de la Jungle, Das Jungle Book, La Libro de la Jungle. Uh, interestingly, in Portuguese, Mowgli, O Menino Lobo, Xanga Jungli, Jungle Book. I'm not sure in, in other languages. He hypnotized Mowgli, the little boy, into trusting him. Today, I was presenting to a group and talked a little bit about building trust across cultures. Later, I was listening back to the interview that you're going to hear in a few minutes and noticed that my interviewee, who's based in Italy, mentioned something very specific about culture and one of the layers of culture. She talked about provincialism. Last week, I did a certification course in the Culture Active Cross-Cultural Training Programme, which means that I now have another notch on my belt, a different kind of notch, to bring into organisations and to the individuals that I coach that can allow them to see themselves more clearly across different cultures and how they map. One of the conversations we had during the training course was about the layers of culture. One of those layers is regional, or in this case, provincial, provincial, as my interviewee said. And what she was talking about was that even though she grew up in Italy, she still experiences that sense of not belonging. She has still gone through the motions of wondering whether she'd ever have a chance to ask for more in her life, a better salary, better life, better conditions. And she's not the only person this week who said that to me. Now, I'm not dogging Italy here. I'm going to explain a little bit about the depth of the layers of culture that create this sense of provincialism in a moment. Another person that I spoke to this week shared the same. They're living in a smaller part of Italy. And no matter how long they'll be living there, even though they have the privilege of having white skin and speak the language, they're still an outsider. But why? Does it make the Italians rejecting of other nationalities? Does it create a prejudice? Is there something wrong in Italy? There's never right and never wrong when it comes to culture. It's culture. But what is culture? When you think about it, what does culture really mean? What are the words that come up for you in your head? A lot of people say history, values, beliefs. Absolutely. Language comes into it. Laws, literature, artifacts. And all of those things are held up over successive generations, time after time after time, time and again, which become then so ingrained that it's very hard to shake them. And I say this from experience. I'm currently living in my fifth country. I've worked on five continents and lived on three in some of the deepest cultures in the world. I lived in the Australian outback for nearly a year. I lived in China. They're very different, vastly different from the culture that I grew up in. 
And yet, when I did my culture assessment, I still come out in and around the mark of Ireland. Those deeply ingrained beliefs that have been fed to me throughout my life are still there underlying, despite the fact that there are other aspects of myself, whatever you want to call the self, as I said last week, that when we go deeper into it, looking at my values and my deeper sets of beliefs are different. So going back to trust and these layers of culture, Ka might have been able to circle his eyes and look into the eyes of Mowgli and sing a lovely hypnotising song to get him to trust in him. But it's not that easy when it comes to other human beings, nor is it that easy when you take that human being and you put them in their culture. Now, you could be listening to this and saying, Christine, what do you mean when you're talking about culture? Culture isn't just the country or the place that a person comes from. And you'd be very right. Like I said, culture is made up of things like law, languages, artifacts, food, literature. But it goes deep. We have national cultures, professional cultures. There are class cultures, religious cultures. I have a bit of the Chinese culture in me, the Australian culture on the coast. The Australian outback culture, the backpacker culture, my individual family culture, my friend group cultures, the different friend groups I've had over the years, team cultures, regional cultures. The list goes on and on. Culture is many things, all of these different aspects through our life experience, through our traumas, through our languages, through our perceptions, colour the lens through which we see the world. In this culture active model, without going into too much detail on it, we look at what Richard Lewis, the inventor of the model, whom I was incredibly lucky to be trained by in part of it. I was also trained by Michael Gates, another one of the, the people who developed and built the model with Mr. Lewis. Richard Lewis is 94. So to get somebody sitting in front of you at 94 years of age, reminds you a bit of your granddad. Uh, training you on the, the model that he created was phenomenal. I feel like I'm a legacy holder of this knowledge, magic, but I'm going off point. He talked about three different types of culture. He based his work on the research of Edward Hall, one of the founding fathers, and his wife, Mildred Hall, let me mention her as well, because she often gets forgotten, of, of, of culture on Hofstede's collectivism, individualism, uncertainty, avoidance, on Trompenard's dimensions, on a couple of other German sociologists, and extensively built and developed upon that over the years based on his own experience. His book, When Cultures Collide, has now sold a million copies, and I believe is one of the leading books in university studies and some of the top organisations around the world for developing culture and cultural understanding. What he noticed was that in all of those models, a huge proportion of the world, in fact, the largest proportion of the world from a population perspective, was ignored or left out. The so-called Asian cultures, or the, we might say, APAC region of the world. Now, anybody who knows anything about culture will know that we can't just bundle all the APAC region together and say that there's an Asian culture, no more than we can say that there's a type of European, even an American 
because there are many different types in all of those different areas. And that's part of the work that he did was determine that there are what he titles linear active, multi-active and reactive cultures, three different types. And they all build trust differently. But what does that mean? Well, what's very interesting about it is that despite the fact that there might be a reactive culture like Japan or China or a multi-active culture like Italy or Spain, the way that they build trust or the degree of trust that they have could be similar. So Italy and China, for example, are very different types of culture, but they would be classified as a low trust culture. If you think about a ring of circles, the family has absolute trust. It's the most important. And then when you move out away from that family, you've got friends and acquaintances and colleagues and the trust reduces a little bit. It might be based on a bit of interdependency and it's heavily, heavily trust based on, on it being built. Then you go out a bit further, others not really any presumption about their degree of trust, how much they can trust them. There might be a bit of tentativeness and then go out even further to the ring at the outside. And we think of foreigners, rarely trusted, often seen as enemies or potential competitors. And what I'm thinking when I'm talking through this of is mapping it like the ring roads in Beijing or many of the big cities around the world. The way that Beijing is built, is that it's got ring roads and the further away from the city you go, the more Chinese the area is, the less, the, the fewer expats that are there. So I lived on the fifth ring road when I lived in Beijing. That would be considered very far out, maybe a little bit surprising for other expats that I lived there. I'm not a big fan of having to travel far distances for work. The university that I lectured in and that I represented when I was traveling around China was on the Fifth Ring Road. So for me, it made sense to live out there. But it also very much felt like I was on the Fifth Ring Road or the Fifth Ring of Trust. At the beginning, particularly when nobody knew me, the Chinese in the street would, I'd actually hear these noises. One day I passed this group of guys and there were two of them looking at me and the rest were looking in a different direction. And I honestly heard this, uh, as if, what the hell is that? And they tapped each other and they all started looking around and staring at me like they had never seen anything like me before. And the truth was that potentially they hadn't. Depending on which part of China they, they came from, they may have moved into Beijing as migrants, a lot of people do, and not have seen a blonde-haired, blue-eyed Irish woman walking down the street before. I got that a lot from Beijing. But what I learned was that in China, it wasn't until I think 1985, if I have my date correct, that the government said it is legal now, as opposed to illegal, for the Chinese to communicate and engage with foreigners in public. Basically, what I'm saying here is that there was a rule before that meant that you were not legally allowed to speak to a foreign person in China before 1985. So, for instance, any of the elderly whom I might be on a train with would move away from me in fear because of that ingrained belief that they might get in trouble. 
Now, I'm not saying there's anything wrong with this. Living in China was one of the best experiences of my life. I cannot wait to go back to Beijing. The first thing I will do is go for a jianbing, which is this incredible pancake that they make that cannot be replicated anywhere else. There are some restaurants in Ireland who do it, but still I haven't found one that's the same. But again, I'm going off point. I love food. Food and culture for me are hugely important. Back to trust. If we consider this trust circle and these rings of trust and then bring ourselves into a culture like the Italian culture, we begin to understand why there might be a sense or a feeling of disconnection or lack of acceptance amongst the local population. But the thing is, is that it's not actually any different necessarily for provincial Italians. And that's something my guest refers to when she speaks today. Somebody coming from a, I I can't choose a particular part of Italy, so let's say a central part, moving to the north, would potentially have the same difficulty or experience similar disconnection and lack of trust as somebody coming in from outside of Italy. So when we really think about this trust issue, it's important for us to recognise that trust, mistrust and communication are all embedded in cultural understanding, in traditions, in mannerisms and in perceptions and beliefs that have been built and developed over time. They're very, very hard to change. If we go to the basis of communication and we break things down to the very, very simple form. I actually remember studying this in my communications lectures in year two, I think, of my degree. Oh, a long time ago now. We think about having the sender and having the receiver. The sender creating the coding of the message the receiver decoding whatever message they hear and whatever that noise is in the middle. Trust, language, values, life experiences, perceptions, silence, non-verbal behaviour, they are all part of that noise. And an aspect of the work that I do and the work that my guest today does is help to Make that noise a little bit less loud. Turn down the noise in people's heads. Allow themselves to change the script like she did. And realise that they are just as worthy as everybody else. They are just as loved, if not more loved, by their clients as anybody else might be. And they have the capacity to do what they choose and wish to do, wherever they are, the country they were born in or not. We talked today about a lot of things. Rory and I had a lot of fun. She used to be an actress. and So when she mentioned that, naturally I started getting excited because of my history as a speech and drama teacher and a performer for much of my life. But before we get into that, we talk about accent bias and surname bias. 
we talk about the difference between the comment and question. That's a foreign surname. Where does it come from? And could you tell me a bit about the country you were born in? Rory shares the, the deep-seated difference in the bias that comes across when you receive a question like that at an interview. The appropriacy of a question like that at an interview. We were supposed to talk a little bit about how things have begun to change and have been changing in Italy, particularly over the last number of years. But we didn't go back to it. So we are going to go live. If you're listening to the, this on the day that it's, gone, it's published, we are going to be going live on Instagram on the Wednesday, the day after it's gone live. And this will be on the 27th of September, 2023. Oh, imagine. I'm thinking now about listening back to this in 10 years time and saying, oh, that was some time ago that I talked about this. So join us on Instagram if you want to hear us talking a little bit more about the changes in Italy. Rory shares very openly, very honestly and very securely with me her opinion on my attitude and opinion of the loaded term native speaker and non-native speaker and what the real difference actually is. She shares some fantastic exercises for breathing, which I also do, but I didn't do this, them in quite the same way as the dogs that she introduced to me during our conversation. So I hope you'll very much enjoy them. We'll probably do them on the live on Instagram as well. And you might be thinking now, what are you talking about, Christine? Well, listen to the episode and you'll know. If you're an Italian speaker, we talk a little bit about exercises you can do to practice the, the H and the A sound, the H, the H and the A for hungry and angry. A little bit about the trilled R that I can do when I do it like that, but I find very hard to do when I do it across other languages. And we have a nice conversation about the diaphragm, that lovely parachute in our bodies, which goes up and down. And in fact, is one of the most important muscles that we have for speech. And how it's often omitted and neglected when people think they need to improve their communication skills and only want to study grammar or vocabulary. We had great fun. Lots of giggles, lots of laughter. Rory is clearly an expert in her field, given the fact that she used to be an actress. She is multilingual, multi-certified. A wonderful woman to speak to. And so, given all of that, I am now going to share with you a fantastic conversation, honest, deep and true, that I had with Rory Sahaji. The ESL industry, or the English language teaching industry, used to be very much about this term that many of us in the ELT industry would use uh, with possibly a little bit of pain, native speakerism. Rory, I've just heard you say that. Welcome to the show. Thank you for being here. What did you mean? Thank you for having me, Christine. What I meant was, is that um, in my uh, experience as, uh, as an English teacher, I have had different uh, situations 
uh, where my surname would be the first question of a job interview. Um, as in, uh, that's a foreign surname. Where do you come from? And uh, of course, that wasn't always like that. I've also had amazing job interviews when the first question was, will you please tell me about the country where you was born, when you were born? And that, that was uh, one of the, probably the best job interviews I've had. So it is quite, um, um, at the time it was um, a bit sad that someone would welcome you that way without probably realizing, but also sometimes knowing it very well, knowing about the situation as if the person was to say, look, this is reality. This is how things are handled. We have clients and clients want English speakers, native English speakers. And, and that was very clear. So that was like, uh, I, I, I don't care who you are or who you come from. I personally don't care, but this is, this is life and I, you have to accept it. So let me ask you that question. That was sort of the feeling, you know, what you could perceive uh, without clearly saying it, of course, this is what one perceives when, when that was, five years ago, I think that things have changed and are changing, slowly changing, luckily. Okay. okay. Right, we'll, we'll definitely get into the, the change and what might be happening now to create those changes. But if you don't mind, like explore a little bit more about what you've just said. You're certainly not the first person I've heard say this. There is another lady that I know who actually works out of Italy, who is an advocate of these interview practices and the surname question she talks about a lot. You, you said there that one of the experiences was where they'd ask you about your surname straight away. The other was asking you about the country you were born in. What was the difference for you in, the, in those two approaches? What made the other one okay, for example? It was as if in the in that other interview, in the second type, let's say, I was seen and I was accepted for who I was. Mm. And this is very important for everyone. For sure. Absolutely. Any questions about your qualifications? They might like to know. Well, those were <laughs> secondary. I have right. a lot of qualifications, actually. <laughs> Which tends to be the case. Good. Yeah, mm -hmm. but mm -hmm. that was not the case. Okay. So uh, there is a big difference between the first case and the second case. So in the in the the, the first one, which is the, the the exact extreme, right? And the negative case um, is about um, feeling very small and feeling judged in a small way, feeling uh, sort of defined by a small world. Uh, by something that should never be, really should never be for anyone. I'm still lucky because I have a white skin, but imagine 
other people with a colored skin, right? That is quite evident to have. And um, yeah, even, even if I lived in a big city like Milan, uh, which uh, is supposed to be, and it claims the right to be a European city, uh, where there are so many people living and uh, exchanging experiences and working there, immigrants, Italians of uh, different cities also. But uh, being in this, still in this situation, that was a sign of provincialism that was so deep and so enrooted that I thought that I would never make it and I thought that I would never uh, have the chance to ask for more actually for a better salary for a better life uh, for better conditions mm. oh, that's a, a tough thing to like but that is the second part which is a, a good one <laughs> we'll, we'll definitely explore because it takes a lot of yeah. courage and grit to get to, to where you are <laughs> So it's, uh, I'm honored to, to hear your story and to talk to you. And I thank you for coming today. Because you, you did grow up in Italy and you speak Italian fluently, you speak English fluently. Yeah, yeah. You, yeah. So there was no need for this question. No, 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 absolutely. I consider myself multilingual. I speak fluently uh, Italian, English and Albanian because I was born there. So, uh, and Spanish too. Uh, I have a degree in English and Spanish, actually. Uh, then I have a CELTA degree for teaching to, to adults uh, in, uh, you know, in the corporate world. And um, I don't want you to feel in any way that you need to list your qualifications here. There's no need for that in this conversation. Not for me. Yeah, absolutely. But I don't want you to feel that you do need to. Yeah. Anybody no, who's listening, you can check Rory out there and look at all those lovely, juicy qualifications on our LinkedIn. If, <laughs> if you wish to share them, absolutely, because they, they're impressive already. Uh, I just don't want you to feel that there is a need for no, you to do that. they're there. Yeah, you're right. Yeah. <laughs> um, so you, you, you said you had these experiences. You, I'm guessing, finished university, you've gone out to the working world and it was almost like an attitude of that's the way things are. Exactly. I run this yes. business. This is how things yes. go. Right. And it was like 90%. Something like, like, really, like you didn't have any, any choice. That's just it. That, that so what did you it. do? How did you, did you ever uh, challenge it? I know I'm changing my question now, but let me ask, change it to the second one first and then we get no, to what you I did. Just, yeah, I kept, I kept on going. I, um, Luckily, I ha I also had many private clients uh, through word spread, and uh, I've been loved. This hmm. is very important. I feel I feel loved, and uh, because I feel that what I invested was just me, myself, nobody else, nothing else, and and that gave me a lot of confidence. Uh, made me improve my skills even more. And I said, okay, I'll keep the schools. 
whatever they are, but I also want to grow my tiny little business, you know, and, and go on with private clients too. And, uh, and so I did. And uh, yeah, now it's very, very different from before. Wow. So you, you kept a little bit with schools, but because you I, gave I all of yourself. Yes, because you need to do it. You, you cannot detach completely. You need okay. to have that, uh, that, stable income a minimum you know you cannot rely totally on on private clients so what did you do to overcome this bias let's call it for what it is stigma and bias in the schools that you were experiencing uh i just kept going uh once in a while i would communicate something on social media there are other uh teachers uh non non-native speaker uh, non-native speakers and uh, and and they they would do the same once in a while but uh, the resistance was it probably is somehow uh, so strong uh, the bias was so strong that uh, we would always have comments like uh, yeah you can teach grammar uh, you can teach this as if they would and generally they were native speakers Honestly, this is true story. It has happened through the years and through 10 or 13 years of teaching. Yeah, yeah. My, my face listeners is showing a look of disgust. So that's why Rory is <laughs> firmly saying to me, honestly, this happened. Yeah, I mean, I, part of the reason that I do the work I do with my clients is, is confidence building to be able to stand in an office, in a meeting, in a presentation, on a stage, wherever, in front of this bias and stand tall with their heads up. I am an advocate against the term native speaker. I don't know if you've had a chance to listen to my podcast episode on it yet, but I I feel that it's loaded with bias. I get labeled as a native speaker, but I'm Irish. I'm not technically a native speaker of English. We are technically, we, we learned Gaelic first. Irish. Well, we sort of do. That's probably know, a, a bone of contention, but you get where I'm at. <laughs> um, and, and so I really think that a part of it stems from this consistent belief that there is a difference between a native speaker and a non-native speaker. What are you, what's your opinion? Obviously cannot be positive. I also question myself. At some point, I said, should I really be totally free? Uh, teaching whatever I want to teach, or maybe I really should reconsider my skills and maybe I should redesign my my teaching. Maybe I should really focus more on grammar. Maybe I should really focus on the things I do best and not do, I don't know, advanced levels, for example, or, or for example, or treat different topics like which are generally more native speaker related, uh, phrasal verbs or idiomatic expressions and so on. I seriously ask this question to myself. Can you really do everything? Can you really cover everything? 
because you need to do it 100% well. Otherwise, how can you be credible? Mm -hmm. and, uh, and then I said, I can. Actually, I can. Why not? <laughs> I can. I am officially a teacher, a coach uh, who, held, who has helped so many people. I can't even remember how many people I helped in my career. And, you know, when anyone finishes their CELTA and they go into a, a language school to teach, they're not put on advanced classes. And it doesn't matter whether they are a so-called native English speaker or not. I remember being given my first advanced class. I nearly crapped myself. <laughs> Honestly, and I went to one of the most experienced teachers in the school, panicking. I've just been put in an advanced class. and I love English. I, I, I love it. And I was competent. But there's a difference between competence in English and understanding how to, to use it. And being able to answer the question, what is that? First of all, when someone asks you about, let's say, an idiom, and for listeners who may not know what we mean when we say idioms, I just was speaking to someone, we'll use the every cloud has a silver lining. What's that in Italian? I think you have that. I'm sorry, I'm putting under pressure there. I should I ask you to, to translate really that. That's terrible. They're, they're very different. <laughs> yeah, yeah and, and that's be a similar. That's why I asked. Similar uh, expression, but uh, they're, they're very different. They are. And I apologize for, put, for putting you on the spot there with that. I didn't mean no, to don't, do that. Don't worry. That's fine. <laughs> I ask it because I know it's not the same expression because I've done it with classes before. And you, yeah, exactly. this is the thing with idioms. You look them up and you realize there's a slight similarity there might be words that are the same but there's some differences the concept is the same uh, so I'm going off point so-called native speakers who are teachers are equally as afraid first of all if they don't have a, a massively overly inflated ego when they're put on an advanced class they they are no more capable in fact I would argue less capable of answering the what is that question What's the difference between those two tenses and why is it like that? And can you give me examples? And so question themselves. They're half decent teachers anyway. There's a lot of my opinion coming out here. I recognize that. So, so what do you think? Uh, I, I recognize you saying and acknowledge you saying you questioned yourself. And you recognized and realized for yourself, I can do this. I am a qualified teacher. Not only am I qualified as a teacher, but I'm certified to, was it master's level, degree degree level at least? Master's in degree, English, yeah. master's degree, which yeah. many of us don't have. Yeah. So you're by far yeah, more than qualified. syndrome is there, Christine, it all is, the time, you know, for 100%. everyone. <laughs> but do you think then there is, what is really the difference between this so-called native speaker and the non-native speaker? That's a very good question. I never asked myself. Uh, the confidence, I guess. Um, the, no, the feeling of being, mm -hmm. the fact that an, a native speaker never, presumably, I don't know, never questions whether something is right or not. I did. I definitely did. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I, yeah, I still do. And I, and I make mistakes. 
yeah, all the time. This is, this is what we assume that a, a native speaker has has things clear. Yeah. And, and this is where time, I'm going like, with the argument that the world has been made to believe, in my opinion, that native speakers, and when we say native speakers now, listeners, we're on video so we can see each other. Our fingers are going up at the sides of our heads in little quotation marks. In other words, we're, we're, we're not fully believing in the word that we're saying. Well, I'm not anyway, but I think I saw your fingers move a moment ago. <laughs> That was like we yeah. like non-natives. Non but but I mean, when I say native speaker, my fingers go up. I do not use the term. I do not use it when I speak of myself. I do not use it when I speak of my clients. I believe the term needs to be abolished firmly, wholly and completely. I think it's loaded with bias. I think it creates an imposter syndrome in people, particularly like you, for example, who have master's degrees in English and tell themselves that they are not capable of teaching the language when someone who has never studied it to teach it thinks they can walk into a classroom and help somebody learn to a proficient level. I, I firmly believe it needs to be abolished. That's why I'm having these conversations and why I appreciate you being here you. so much. Yeah. I'm with you. So you kept going as this okay. incredible strength that you you are. You you stayed in the schools, but you built your own business through your heart, through giving yourself, through being loved. And and I think if if I've met any teachers, it's the ones who've taught with their hearts and created love in their students who are the best teachers. And you turned it all around. Now. Yeah. You coach yeah. actors and uh, professionals and news reporters, journalists, isn't that right? Exactly. I have acting background, which means that uh, I, I'm supposed to be an actress, actually. A wow. theatre actress, yeah. And it all started, like, I started teaching as a part-time job because, because I, I was acting and actors are notoriously poor <laughs> <laughs> my sister was in LA yeah, for a number okay, of years so you know that and and yeah that that was the the initial idea I was afraid of teaching by the way I've always been afraid of teaching because I always saw these teachers at school was uh were full of responsibility and a uh, certain load of tension, emotional stress, you know, but mostly the responsibility that was quite scary for me. But at the same time, I noticed how they interacted and how they made it special uh, in the good days, let's say, right? Uh, when there were uh, things to share with, with us, with the students. And, and secretly, I, and probably also, Unconsciously, I started to wish that uh, to to build a, a a little dream that that was never expressed. That the big one was acting, and the little one was teaching. But now these are completely <laughs> like reversed because now I don't act anymore. Uh, at least for the last two years, I haven't been acting. 
and uh, teaching is definitely has become my my actual job and how do you feel about teaching now i feel good i miss acting but i feel i feel okay yeah mm -hmm. i'm happy lovely and you work with people in acting uh, I have also worked mm -hmm. with, with actors, but mostly with uh, TV reporters and journalists. Not only TV, honestly, also print journalists, because when they contact me, I never turn them down because if I can help, I, I can help. So that I, I, I don't say no, honestly. Uh, uh, the TV ones are probably. Um, the ones they can help better because of my acting skills and okay. because I can give something more in terms of um, other technical skills uh, such as breathing uh, techniques or the voice or how to put together English and the body language and the voice and how to handle them and manage them and to make them feel more confident, especially the young ones. Oh, I adore this. Super I bet it is. Wow. So I, I'm actually a, a trained speech and drama teacher as well. My mom is, uh, well, my mom was my speech and drama teacher okay. for much of my life. So let's let's dig into the voice. A little bit. Can we do that? <laughs> yeah. What's your favorite thing to help somebody develop when you're working with them on their vocal technique? Oh, my God. Uh... <laughs> the funniest one is the the dog breath. All right, go on. <laughs> <Dog breath. laughs> so you have to imagine you're a dog, uh -huh. but you have to do different kind of dogs. Uh, the first one is the the Chihuahua, and uh, the voice that you're you, you're supposed to to be training is here. It's concentrated here on the throat. Well, it's the third voice. The throat voice, yeah. When yeah, we say here, just for listeners is, who don't see, the, yeah, the, the throat resonance. Okay. Here, yeah. Yeah. So the Chihuahua is something like, and then there is for I listeners, know, those of you who don't get to see this video is, yet, <laughs> she's acting a Chihuahua. I love this. I'm gonna give you one afterwards that I do for the for the R sound. Yeah. That's a dog as well. It's great. I do it all the time, actually. Uh, to, for me, it's like you know. Uh, is uh, was my everyday life and uh, before the stage and but before you go going... into the next one because mm -hmm. we know what we're talking about here we know yeah. we're talking about developing resonance and developing throat resonance mm -hmm. but what what do you mean then when you're talking about developing throat resonance for people who are listening right. and they don't really know uh, what we're talking about that means de uh, developing awareness on where the voice goes mm awareness of the vocal cords awareness of how to modulate the voice according to the situation sometimes as a reporter you have to shout because uh you are in you are outside more, most of the time you're doing a live uh, there is noise everywhere uh, uh there could also be a war zone sometimes, many times, actually. So um, they have to shout and they have to control the voice at the same time. Mm. And they have to use English, which is not their 
uh, first language. So there are different things to, to manage at the same time. Knowing how to protect the vocal cords without shouting, because this, this is what actors do, is fundamental and to preserve the voice and the air, the breath, to leave the, the space open, free from any uh, obstacle when it closes, for example, or tension. Tension um, tends to um, make us retract mm. or um, be more tense. And it, it makes the vocal cord tense too. And the diaphragm as well. So these exercises are also done for the diaphragm. Actually, the diaphragm is number one. Mm. <laughs> the, yeah, the, breathing the is the first. It has to be, yeah, yeah, yes, to be uh, opened and, uh, and relaxed and uh, strengthened because you need to put strength in, in, in the diaphragm. And the diaphragm is between the, the belly and the, the chest. It's shaped like a parachute is the way that I tend to describe it. And when we breathe, it's like the parachute landing. Yeah. And the parachute taking off, going up yeah. and down. Yeah, yeah. Oh, I love this. Or a balloon. <laughs> or a balloon. Yeah, yeah. So I, I do the 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 diaphragm as the parachute going up and down, mm -hmm. and for projection, I do the balloon and breathing. So the diaphragm going up and down for the control mechanism, the balloon for the abdominal wall pushing out and coming back in. So I'm expanding the balloon and contracting it, and then a ball from the balloon to project the voice to different corners of the room. Come on, Eshkel. Miscusi. Excuse me, listeners. A little interlude to remind you that in the show notes, there is a link to my online platform. And I've changed it to the Connected Communication Club, a club for supporters of the podcast. I don't know how much you know about podcasting or independent creators, but it takes a bit of effort and investment for us to be able to put these podcasts together. I love doing it and I want to be able to continue doing it. I, I'm being told that I'm bringing some value to you, that you're enjoying what I'm researching and what I'm looking into. So I'm asking you, if you can and you're willing to, please support the podcast. There's a couple of different options. All of them will lead you into my online platform that has over 140 different lessons in some of what Rory and I talk about today. Breathing, vocal production, resonance, all of the different aspects of vocal modulation, as well as brain-based communication, presentation skills, ah, English pronunciation. I can't tell you, th there's honestly so much in there. The different options that you have are to be a supporter of the podcast, to help me to keep this going, to be able to live and invest my time, my energy and my effort into finding great guests, into researching and into bringing you the best possible content that I can. You can also choose to take the upgraded option and come and join the platform as a lifetime member. There is a little bonus to that because you get additional access to some of the Zoom masterclasses that I'm going to host, to 15-minute calls with me. But if you can't afford it, don't worry about it. Just, if you can, support the podcast. And if you're not able to do that from a financial perspective, please share it. Help others 
to hear what we're talking about so that over time they will develop the confidence to stand strong in themselves and share their own stories. Now, let's go back to the lovely Rory and the Labrador. Love it. Yeah, look, I'm not, we have the Chihuahua, right? What's the other dogs? Ah, the other ones are the Labrador and the What's the Labrador? Labrador. So, uh, no, the same Bernard, the last ones. The Labrador is this. Beautiful. Sorry, shoulders are down. Lovely, lovely. Three gasps. I'm exaggerating because I also need to show it because I don't have the, the full body showing. And then the same Bernard will be deep down like these. Uh, <laughs> I love him. <sighs> I have to take a picture of this. <laughs> Can you do that again? Silly me. I'm gonna do it with you. I'm gonna do it with you. Okay. <sighs> Anybody who's listening to the podcast now, we are sitting yeah. back to back. If you imagine us on Zoom, pretending to be the dogs. Ah, oh, they're fantastic exercises because you have yeah. to bring in a bit of fun. Yeah, because it, it's important for the brain as well, for dopamine to flow so that the Absolutely. person is enjoying the, the yes. journey and the process. Yes. Yes. And I love that you bring in this book of production. So let me ask you, if I may then, do you find it challenging to help people understand that it's necessary to do this work on the voice and vocal technique? as part of learning to improve their speaking skills and their in English with what you do? They don't expect it generally mm-hmm. when, I, when I have this session. Generally, there are two sessions because they're quite long. So And uh, clients need to be trained, but mostly you have to introduce everything because uh, most of them are not familiar. Yeah. with these type of techniques and they sometimes they don't even know where the diaphragm is and uh, so I I go very slowly uh, taking small steps so that they can uh, be in the process and they can follow the steps otherwise it doesn't make any sense like especially this type of, of exercise so they don't expect it and uh, by the end of the lesson they are so relaxed so good that it feels so well and journalists especially have a very stressful life Mm -hmm. uh, full of distractions full of things to do and this is also a space they find for themselves and sometimes even for the first time you know or after a long time Uh, I feel a bit sorry when I say this because I, I notice that they need this. Uh, but I'm also happy that I can help in this direction, that I can uh, also bring uh, somehow a, a, a sense of well-being uh, and also a sense of joy at doing things, rediscovering their profession that is so beautiful, so so passionate. So they don't expect it, and then they they actually they are surprised because when they start speaking to me uh, and they when they reach out to me, they expect to be 
talking with a, a classic English teacher. Yeah. Because they contact me for their English skills, right? And when I do this, it's absolutely uh, <laughs> like out of the world. Like, yeah. <laughs> where have you been? Sometimes it's, it's really surprising and yeah. surprisingly good. So uh, I would like to to do more of this and probably I would also like to dedicate a separate module uh, to reporting and breathing techniques that are not necessarily related to English, mm -hmm. to, to English teaching, I mean, because generally yeah. I do them all together. So there is the, the English module, vocabulary fluency, uh, vocabulary uh, the slang you know used in the field and uh, mm, I saw uh, one of your posts about different terms I actually learned a word on that what was it uh, a rollback where they yeah. they yeah. retract something that they have said they, in a previous exactly, article correct. <laughs> don't take responsibility <laughs> for that, it with that yeah it happens See, so many you taught times. me a word <laughs> yeah yeah it happens a lot. Yeah. Oh, uh, yeah, it does. That's why they discover it. Oh, so this is it, right? Yeah, that's it. <laughs> Heaven help them if they took responsibility for something. Yeah. <laughs> that means a lawsuit, doesn't it? <laughs> I love this. And that, I would... That's how they rediscover their profession as well. Because they go through, <gasps> they go through an initial process because they do it in another language. Yeah. They do something that, they have done for many years in their language, but now they do it in another language. So they have to, to pass through through that, to go through it. Yeah, I can see your joy light up in, in the work that you do. I think it's a Absolutely. very good thing it. for the I world that you changed yeah. your, your, the interviews, your approach. The interviews are the best part. The interviews are great. It's like what you're doing now, I do it with them. Okay. I, I, but I simulate them because they, they need to, to rehearse, so they need to, uh, to prepare uh, right. interviews, and, uh, but even simulate a situation where they interview in English because many of them have never done it before. So they have a first taste of it. Mm. And, when they and when they do, they say, okay, now I know what I'm going to do mm, now I super. know how it will be yeah. what it will be like how I can structure my questions how what kind of questions I should ask and how much I should prepare in English and many other things yeah and the discomfort the the challenging questions that I'm, I'm guessing you probably simulate some of that puts them in a place where they realize I don't I don't have the structure that I want to use for for that response I need to find another story. How do I tell that story in English? I'm used to telling it in Italian, yeah, but, exactly. but not so much in English. Like, Fabulous. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Wow. Really fantastic. Yeah. There's lots more that I would like to, us to talk about offline. I actually have a full online training platform of vocal production and pronunciation that um, I, I sense a collaboration could come out of this conversation. If you're open Ooh, to that, having that yeah, conversation. Always. <laughs> For our dog, I say our, the one that my mom taught me, we we use a growl for helping people with the letter R. So you no doubt know the tongue is one of the strongest muscles in the body. 
and we can build it. It can be weak, it can be strong. And so what we do with R, because R is not a, a letter, a specific sound, R is just a murmur. Often, no doubt, you've come across this because in Italy, they they have that lovely mm, R and curled and you have it in Spanish as well. Mm-hmm. So we have to learn how to stop the tongue from moving. But also then when you're coming from a linguistic background like Korean or Japanese or Chinese, you don't have the capacity to, well, you do have the capacity. The capacity is always there, yeah, but you're not used yeah. to creating the R sound and then it can flick with the L. So we ask or simulate or imitate the sound of a dog growling. Grr, grr, like so that grr. And you get them to growl like a dog. Okay, now stop for me. Where's your tongue? And we get the placement and the feeling of where the tongue is. Growl, just just growl like a dog. Because if you tell them, make the R sound, and they start trying to make a sound. Whereas when you just say growl like a dog. They will imitate. It's the R murmur. Beautiful. Where's your tongue? Oh, where's the side? Where are the sides? Are they touching the teeth? Are they touching the top of your mouth? Where's the tip? Up or down? Okay, and what happens when you move your mouth like this now? Where does your tongue go? Okay, now try this one for me. And you move into different words and places. So that's that's a great way to get somebody into it. And if they're slipping, you get them to put a pen in their mouth. So the tongue has to... The TH sound, but... Uh... Do you know what this is? Oh, she's blowing on glasses, listeners. For those of you who don't know what's going on. What sound is it? What sound? Oh, H. Oh, for hungry and angry. And angry. Love it. Exactly. Love it. Yeah. 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 Blow on your glasses. The Italian speaker because they don't have it. Mm. Uh, yeah. It, it's the same. Yeah. Method. Super. Great. Oh, so many things to talk about. Okay, I don't want to keep you much longer because it's very late for you. Thank you so much for for being here and, and sharing beautiful. this evening. Ah, it's it been was wonderful. Unexpected, actually, you're great. Really. <laughs> likewise, likewise. Uh, Thank you so much. Yeah, you're very welcome. Thank you yeah, for sharing. Yeah. Oh, no, I, 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 likewise too. <laughs> that people are listening, thinking, "Now, what are they doing here? We never met before, <laughs> listeners. Remember, no, exactly. it's the first time." Uh, but there is one question that I ask people who do come on the podcast. So if you don't mind me asking before you go, the title, as you know, is connected communication. Mm-hmm. Question is, what does connected communication mean to you? Many things. It starts from connection. So this communication is made to connect. And that is the first thing that comes to my mind. But uh, even before that, I think that we personally need to be connected as people first. I am Rory and I need to be connected before I start teaching, before I start doing anything, actually. (laughs) I need to be connected in terms of uh, mind, senses, emotions, also uh, space, and then people. And then is that in, at that point, I'm ready to speak. 
and to communicate because speaking is only a tiny part of oh, it. Oh, yes. <laughs> oh, yes. On that, we absolutely agree. Thank you. Thank you. The last question You're is if people want to find you, where can they do that? LinkedIn, mostly. Okay. So just DM me for anything you want to. Also, chatting is fine. So anything you want to ask about, anything you want to discuss, anything you you feel the curiosity to 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 ask, uh, even you know questions that are not strictly related to uh, to what I do, to teaching, etc. Even knowing each other is very important. So just DM me. It's Rory Sahachi. Is that the correct pronunciation? Yes, Sahachi. Yes. S-A-H-A-T-C-I. Yes. On LinkedIn, you specialize in helping journalists, whether it's TV, written, print, any type. Yeah. Mm -hmm. and reporters in improving not just their English skills, but their vocal technique and production as well, which is yeah. a very, very important part of learning yeah. to be a speaker. As you already know. Well, thank you so much again for being here. I've really enjoyed our conversation. Great. I admire you incredibly. I'm very proud to know you now, and I'm glad we're making this connection. I look forward to what else comes out of it. Thank you so much. <laughs> Listeners, Whatever you have taken away from this evening, if you feel like letting me know, contacting Rory, making any inquiries, giving us your feedback, please do so, whether it's through the social media channels, private DMs, in comments, or if you wouldn't mind, as a review of the podcast on Apple to help me out, I would be very, very grateful. We would love to hear from you. Thanks for listening. If you're a new listener, thanks for being here. I do hope you'll come back. Hit that follow button and subscribe so that you know when we go live. Until next time, Banakti, Agus Puikas. Thank you again. Mila Glatzi. Wow. What is it, Banakti? Oh, Banakti. Banakti. Bala. Bianakti or Banakti, my Irish now, you're testing. Banakti, it means blessings and Puikas is part of a phrase that we use in Ireland, Buikas Legia, is thanks be to God, but it's gratitude, Buikas. So blessings and gratitude is how I like to close my podcast. Banakti, August Buikas. Thanks for asking that. Oh, wow. I actually haven't explained it I in a long it. time and I should have explained it more. Thanks for asking. I need ah, to go to Ireland. <laughs> <laughs> you, you do. Well, I'm here till September. All right. Thank you. I really appreciate you being here. Thank you so much.